Please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Jonah. Last week, the sermon, and as Matt said, it's online. You can go to the church website and listen to that, and I encourage you to do that because we looked at a couple of different ways of outlining the book of Jonah. We looked at some of the historical background to the book of Jonah. Uh, We talked about how it parallels two important uh, stories in the New Testament. One is a parable Jesus told about the prodigal son and how in the first couple of chapters of Jonah... He's like the wayward son in that parable who has run away from the father. But in the last couple of chapters of the book, Jonah's more like the self-righteous brother that's all upset when the, when the wayward son comes home and the father forgives him. We looked at that last week. We also talked about how Jesus used Jonah in the belly of that fish as a foreshadowing of his own three days in the heart of the earth, as Jesus said. His three days in the tomb after his crucifixion. As I was studying for today's sermon, I discovered another interesting little tidbit about the book of Jonah, one that you're not going to get in the English. So when you look at it in the English, in my translation, the first word is the. But in the Hebrew, because they kind of worded things a little bit differently, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the first word is and. Now, you know, I'm finishing up this doctoral paper, and I've written lots of papers over the past few years, and I was reminded painfully many times, that you can't just write an academic paper the way you talk. Right? So in talking, I may start a sentence with and, may even start a sermon with and, but when you're writing a paper, you don't start it with and, or you get a big red circle around it, right? You may remember that from English class. So Jonah doesn't care about that, though. It starts with the word and. And the significance of this is that it reminds us I mean, here you're reading through the Bible, you come to Jonah, you turn the page, and it starts with the word and. That tells you something's coming before it. It reminds us that the story of Jonah is just one more episode in the ongoing story of God's redemptive mission. It's just one story in the overall big story of God's mercy and grace for us. And this book of Jonah, it's about so much more than a great fish. You know, the fish is only mentioned four times. It's so much more than a story about a great city. Nineveh is only mentioned nine times. It's even more than a story about a reluctant prophet. He's only mentioned 18 times. The book of Jonah is a story about God. He's mentioned 38 times in these four short chapters. It's about God's redemptive mission to rescue all people because He doesn't want any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And it's about us. It's about how we respond to God's salvation plan. It's about how we respond to His great commission to us as believers to come alongside Him in that great rescue plan. But this morning we can learn a lot from Jonah's failures in those regards. You know, we may sit in here today, you may think, well, I'm not like Jonah. Jonah was disobedient. I'm not disobedient. Well, maybe you're not just outright disobedient. Maybe you're not booking any trips to, to, uh, to Tarshish to run away from God. But as every parent in here will tell you, delayed obedience is disobedience, isn't it? And oftentimes that's what we do. We just delay our obedience. We try to wait and see if someone else will pick up the slack first. We hope that maybe someone else will do this. We, we, we tend to sort of just sit back and wait and see what happens. But when we begin to live in disobedience to God, 
what we soon find out is that we become comfortably indifferent to God altogether. But despite our disobedience, despite our indifference, this book, this story, tells us that God is patient. Or as Jonah says in chapter 4, God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And we see this play out in the book of Jonah in four movements. And these four movements are the very movements of the gospel story. The first movement both explains the overall human condition, but it also speaks specifically to Jonah as a runaway prophet. And that's the aspect that I'm going to focus on here. We're going to discuss the broader human condition a little bit later when we get to the sailors. But look with me first at this, this first movement of the story is rebellion. And we see that in verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. As I pointed out last week, in 2 Kings we learned that Jonah was the prophet that inspired the king of Israel to expand Israel's boundaries. Jonah was happy to obey that call. Jonah experienced great ministry success through answering that call. He was a well-known, beloved preacher in Israel. But now God was calling Jonah to expand his horizons, to embrace a God-sized task that would be uncomfortable, costly, Maybe even dangerous. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Israel's greatest military threat. The empire of Assyria was as violent and as wicked as they come. To the Israelites of Jonah's day, Assyria would be like what, the, what Nazi Germany was to the Jewish people in the 20th century. So you can understand Jonah's hatred. Jonah's reluctance to go to these evil, wicked people. And he probably thought it wasn't fair. I mean, other prophets like Isaiah, they got to preach against Nineveh and Assyria, but they got to do it from the comfort of their own land. They got to do it in Judah and Israel where they had an audience that would, yeah, that's right, you know, God stick it to those Ninevites. But God was asking Jonah to run the ball deep into enemy territory. He was supposed to go to Nineveh and say those things. And he didn't like the idea of that. You know, God's mission to save the world often goes against our mission of self-preservation and comfort and self-fulfillment. And that's where the rebellion starts. It begins with a self-centered focus that takes our eyes off God and, 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 and takes our eyes off those around us. We begin to have a wrong attitude toward God's Word. We may say, Lord, Lord, 
but we do not do what He says. We honor Him with our lips, but like Jonah, our hearts are far from Him. And so we find ourselves disobeying the Word and the will of God. Like I said, it's not hard to imagine Jonah's objections to the Word and will of God. You can just hear him saying, Lord, you know I love you. And wherever you lead, I'll go. Just not there. (laughs) Just not to those people. God, it's too dangerous. It's too risky. It's too costly. Aren't there enough people here in Israel that need to hear your word? Why do I need to go all the way to Nineveh? Can't I just preach to the people here? God, don't you know how wicked they are? They deserve your judgment. You know, we do the same thing when we ignore the Spirit's promptings to invite someone to church, to share our testimony, to correct a brother or sister in Christ who's playing dangerous games with sin, to turn a conversation into a gospel conversation. When we delay that obedience, when we resist those promptings of the Spirit, we're no less guilty than Jonah. Maybe you feel a burden to help coach an upward basketball team, to work in the nursery, to help in the kitchen or with child care for lily moms, to sing in the choir, to serve on a committee. You feel that burden. You feel that prompting. You know it's something you should do, but then the excuses come. I'm so busy, Lord. I just don't have the time. God, I've got responsibilities of my own to worry about. Someone else will do it. God, I'm just not that good at that. I've never done that before. What if I don't like it? Maybe maybe next year I'll do that. Remember, delayed obedience is disobedience. See, God doesn't care what you promise to do someday. He only cares about what you do today. Are you being like Jonah? Like Jonah, God has given us a job to do. He's given us an even greater commission than He gave Jonah because Jesus has commanded us to make disciples of all nations, of all people, whether that's the person across the street or the person around the world, including, this includes those people who are different from you. People who don't think like you, talk like you, act like you, vote like you. He even sends us to people who we don't like and who won't like us. He sends us to them as well. You know, when Jesus told His disciples in Acts 1-8 that He wanted them to be His witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem, they were like, hey, that's cool. You know, the home crowd, we can do that. But then Jesus went on to say, and to Samaria and the ends of the earth. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, hold on just a minute. Now you're getting crazy. Samaria? Them? They're unclean. They're half-breeds. They're traitors. We we don't want to go to the Samaritans. The Gentiles? We can't even go into their houses. They're so unclean. We, We can't go to them. They don't like us. And we don't really care for them either. This was Jonah's attitude. Is it your attitude? 
Jonah literally bought a one-way ticket to the ends of the earth. He went as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly get. And aren't we just as guilty when we choose to run away from God and His call? Jonah had forgotten what a privilege it was to know God. To be a part of God's people. To know and have God's Word. Jonah forgot that he himself was a recipient of grace. Have we forgotten that too? I think I forget it when I see the same server at my favorite restaurant week in and week out and I never take the time to share with them about Jesus. Never even mention His name. I forget when I take my car to the same mechanic and I never mention the love of God and the power of Christ to fix his broken marriage. I forget when I take my clothes to the same dry cleaners, but I never once invite them to church. See, I'm going down the same path as Jonah, down to Joppa, down into the boat, and eventually down into the raging seas. Because to run away from obedience to God is always a downward journey. Twice in verse 3. The author tells us Jonas' true destination. Look at verse 3. You see it two times. Jonah ran where? Away from the Lord. And look at the end of that verse. He sailed to Tarshish to what? To flee from the Lord. Tarshish wasn't his destination. His destination was just away from God. When we disobey the word and will of God, we journey downward away from God. And that means that we then invite the discipline of God because God's not going to just let us go. We invite the discipline of God. The Hebrew word in verse 4, when it says that the Lord sent a great wind, sent is such a weak word, the Hebrew word there is hurled. God hurled a great wind into the sea. I mean, picture a baseball pitcher winding up, throwing a fastball with all of his strength. That's what God did. God hurls the wind, the ship, threatens to break up. It's almost like God and the ship are conspiring together against Jonah. God was saying, fine, Jonah, if you won't go to the great city, then I'm going to send you a great storm. If Jonah wouldn't listen to God's voice, well, then God's going to have to speak to Jonah through something he can't ignore and he can't escape. This is what God does for His children. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines the ones He loves. And He chastens everyone He accepts as His Son. Our rebellion never escapes God's notice. And it's foolish to think that we can just resist God's will with impunity. God never brushes off sin. He always deals with it fiercely because sin is serious. And that's not just the sins of commission, the things we do wrong. It's also the sins of omission, the right things that we consistently fail to do. While not every storm that we face in life is the result of sin, every sin, every act of disobedience against God will have a great storm attached to it. Sooner or later, God will hurl the wind at you. Numbers 32.23 says that if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Throughout Scripture, we see God calling His people to be a blessing. He calls Abraham. And He says, Abraham, through you and your children, you're going to be a blessing. 
I'm going to bless everyone that you come into contact with, and eventually every family of the earth is going to be blessed through you. And then God called those descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel. He called them out of Egypt, set them free, brought them to the promised land so they could be His priests to the rest of the earth. Jesus said that His followers should be salt and light. Paul said that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are supposed to be a blessing. But when God's people are in rebellion, instead of being a blessing, we often bring curses on those around us. Twice Abraham lied to kings and brought plagues on their kingdoms. Achan robbed from God and lied about it, causing Israel to lose a major defeat at the hand of the Canaanites. Jonah refused to listen to God's voice, and he not only invited the discipline of God on himself, but he also endangered everyone in the boat with him. And that is the true tragedy of our disobedience as Christians. Because though we sin... Though we may be reluctant to obey, we know that our salvation is secure. We know that no matter what, we're going to heaven when we die. But we we cause great harm to those who are watching our witness. To those we refuse to share the gospel with. And so in our disobedience, we effectively deny sinners the hope of God. We deny sinners the hope of God. The whole ship had gone to praying in verse 5 and 6. But Jonah, he went down below and went to sleep. The man of God, sleeping through the prayer meeting. But no sadder than Jonah's nap is that these men wanted to escape death and the only one who knew how to save them was asleep. But unlike these pagan sailors, Jonah knew the Lord God. And so his sleeping, his sleeping was ensuring that these men would perish forever. He was denying perishing men the opportunity for the hope of salvation. Jonah had grown out of touch with God's Word and God's will. He had grown out of touch with God's heart for people. And now he's even out of touch with his own peril. He's so absorbed with his own personal issues, asleep, not praying While at the same time, these sailors were extremely alert, seeking the common good of everyone on board, praying to their gods for deliverance. The irony here is inescapable. God had sent Jonah to tell pagans about him, but in verse 6, God sends a pagan to point the prophet back to God. This pagan captain, this godless idol worshiper, is rebuking the man of God for failing to care. And failing to pray. It's a shame when the pagan world around us has to rebuke the church for not caring, for not praying, for not sharing the good news of God's love and grace with them. Can't you hear the world? Why aren't you using your faith for the common good? We're all in the same storm, in the same peril. We all want the same outcome, we don't want to drown. Why aren't you helping? Now, as a church, as believers, we are in the same boat as our community. We're in the same boat as this country. We should care about what happens in our schools, in the neighborhoods being plagued by violence, in the halls of government. We should be informed, not just so we can get on Facebook and complain, but so we know how to pray 
and how to vote and how to share the reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to explain it to the skeptics around us, which is what we're learning to do on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. We need to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those who are sick and in prison. Jesus said it is by these things that we will give glory to our Father in heaven and prove ourselves to be His disciples. Jesus couldn't have been any clearer that God loves Everyone, the whole world. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. He doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And because God cares so deeply about people, He cares deeply about how we treat people. And whether or not we are sharing the love of Christ with them. James chapter 2. James writes, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James could say it this way. He could have said, when we keep our faith private, our faith is of no public good. And we live in a culture today that wants us just to keep our faith private. But when we do, we deny others the hope of God. Now, the emphasis in the text at this point begins to turn from Jonah as the focus to the rebellious, uh, to, the, to the sailors. And as I said, being human, they are as in a rebellion against God as Jonah. They just don't know they are. They don't know the Creator God, the Lord of heaven and earth. They are lost in their ignorance and sin, which is why God sends His prophets and His people to tell them about Him, to tell them the reality of their situation and the good news of their salvation. So let's turn our attention to what happens when we do obey the Lord, when we do engage others in gospel conversations. Romans ten seventeen says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. That's why we are sent as His witnesses. Because the gospel isn't something that just naturally occurs to people. It goes against human nature. The only way people will hear and understand the gospel is through revelation. That's the second movement in the story. We've seen rebellion. But then we come to revelation. Look at verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What, what do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. God shows us the severity of our sin problem and he reveals to us the one and only solution. A Savior who is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Now, in this story, God uses an interesting method to begin revealing the truth to these sailors. Casting lots. You may be like, what is casting lots? You ever seen a magic eight ball? You know, where you ask it a question and you shake it and the answer comes up? That's casting lots. Maybe you've drawn straws, right? Or you've played any, mini, miny, mo. That's basically what casting lots was. Yet God chose to use this crude method to point these men to Jonah. And now everyone knows the truth. 
that he was the one responsible for this calamity. By the way, this must have been one monster storm. These were professional sailors. This is what they did for a living, and they are panicking, and they're throwing cargo overboard, and they're making sacrifices and praying to gods. Even they understood there was a divine source behind this monster storm. They knew that some god was responsible, they just didn't know which one and why. And so they had some questions for Jonah. And and these are questions of personal identity. They're not that different than the kinds of questions we ask people when we first meet them. What do you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? But these questions have some deeper meaning. What do you do speaks to our purpose and our mission in life. Jonah was running from his. Where are you from speaks to our place in the world and where we belong. Who are your people speaks to our origins and and our heritage, our associations, and the people that have shaped us. Now, these questions weren't just some kind of an impromptu icebreaker game, because they really wanted to get to know Jonah before they drowned with him. That's not what these guys were doing. By asking, who are you, what they were really after is, whose are you? Who do you serve? Who do you worship? What God do you belong to? Because if they could figure out what God Jonah worshipped, maybe they could figure out what to do to appease that God so they wouldn't drown. See, in their minds, our identity is linked with who we worship. Everybody serves somebody. Who did Jonah serve? And these questions, guys, these questions were an open door for sharing the truth of God's Word, weren't they? These men were asking to know the truth. Jonah had the perfect opportunity to do what Peter said when he wrote, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But Jonah either wasn't ready or he wasn't willing. Because he gave the most shallow answers. He answered the question of race first. I'm a Hebrew. That's interesting. It's almost as if Jonah was placing his national identity ahead of his relationship with God. We can struggle with that as well. Am I a Christian first or an American first? Am I a doctor, teacher, sales clerk first? Or am I a disciple maker first? Which am I most willing to sacrifice for the sake of the other? And that tells us where our priorities are. But then Jonah told them what they wanted to know. That he worshipped the Lord God of Israel who made the heavens, the seas, and the land, and that scared them even worse than the storm. Now, I think it's fascinating that God revealed Himself to these men through random casting lots and through a reluctant witness of a wayward prophet. (laughs) If God can reveal Himself through that, I think He can certainly use you and me to reveal His truth to others. Amen? And upon hearing this revelation, the sailors sought a solution to their problem. Certainly Jonah would know how to appease the God that he had angered. And amazingly enough, Jonah actually took responsibility. Jonah accepted the blame. He told them what to do. And this brings us to the next movement. From rebellion to revelation to repentance. Look at verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. 
And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now I want to be clear about who is doing the repentance here in the story, and it ain't Jonah. This is not contrition on Jonah's part. This is actually further rebellion. It's as if Jonah is saying, I would rather drown in this sea than go back to Nineveh. Because what could have Jonah said? Jonah could have said, it's my fault because I'm running from God. I don't want to go to Nineveh. So let me pray and tell God I'll go to Nineveh and then let's head back to port. You think if Jonah had done that, the sea would have stopped? Yes. But Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He'd rather go to the bottom of the ocean. And in fact, in chapter 4, when we get there three times, in chapter 4, Jonah wishes that he would die. So we see where his heart is. Now, what we see here when we talk about repentance is the repentance and conversion of these pagan sailors. And the process that they walk through is the process everyone walks through when they come to faith in Christ. First, we confess our inability to save ourselves. No, it's sad to see that these sailors cared more for Jonah than he did for them. They resisted the idea of throwing Jonah overboard, and so instead they rowed with all their might. It was a futile effort, but they tried hard to get back to shore, but nothing they could do could appease the wrath of a holy God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Isaiah says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. And so the first thing we have to do is realize that we're in trouble. That the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal separation from God in hell. And there's nothing we can do to escape it. And the first step is to admit I'm lost in my sin and I'm helpless to save myself. No amount of good deeds or going to church or being nice to others can ever make up for my sin. We confess our inability to save ourselves. Secondly, we believe God will hold us accountable. Once the sailors realized they couldn't make it on their own and they would have to do what Jonah said and throw him overboard, they became fearful of God's judgment. And so they prayed for God to spare them. Once we realize that we're lost in sin and we can't get out of it ourselves, we have to believe God is going to hold us accountable for our sins. I think one of the great dangers of our culture today is our culture is beginning to embrace this idea that there is no sin. And if there's no sin, there's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, there's no need for a Savior. You know, if you receive the diagnosis of cancer or or of heart disease... You have to come to terms with the fact that if you don't do something, if you don't pursue treatment, take medicine, change your lifestyle, whatever the doctors say, you're going to die. Believing that gives you the motivation to do what you need to do. Our culture is removing that from us. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and that it is appointed at once for everyone to die and face the judgment. So the question remains, what do we do? What's the solution? And that's the third part there. We submit to God's plan of salvation. Now, though the difference between Jesus and Jonah are many and profound, Jonah here was actually pointing to God's plan of salvation. The idea of a substitutionary sacrifice, which is what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Every parent, every husband and wife in here knows that true love meets the needs of those we love, no matter the personal cost. And that's the kind of love that God the Father has for all people. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So while Jonah was cast out for his own sinfulness, Jesus took our sinful rebellion upon Himself. He who knew no sin became sin for you and me, that we might become the righteousness of God. A God who suffers so we can go free? That's a loving God that we can trust. Amen? And He is a God we must tell others about. And that brings us to our final movement. And that is rescue. Look back at verse 16 again. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows to Him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Now, for these pagan sailors, this was no foxhole conversion. Notice verse 16 happens after the storm stopped. These men, they feared the Lord greatly. And that term, fear the Lord, is the essence of all saving knowledge and wisdom They made vows and offered sacrifices. They turned away from their ineffective idols and false gods who couldn't save them from the storm. And they turned to the Lord God, not for what He could do for them, but for what He had already done for them. And we do the same. When we turn from our sins, from our false gods, who can't give us meaning and purpose in life, who can't provide the happiness, who can't quench our thirst or satisfy our hunger, and we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we do so not for what He can do for us, but what He already did for us on the cross. And even Jonah gets rescued by God. Of course, not in any way you'd want to be rescued, right? I mean, it's not some luxury liner that pulls up and and hoists him aboard. But we're going to pick up the story here next Sunday. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you right now to hold yourself up to Jonah. Are you living in obedience to God's Word and will? Are you sharing the Gospel with those that He brings into your life? Are you serving in the ways that God has shaped you to serve? If you're not doing those things, maybe this morning you're under the Lord's discipline today. Maybe you're denying those who know you the opportunity to know the eternal hope of God through Christ Jesus. This altar this morning is open for you to come and repent and become more like Jonah, I'm sorry, more like Jesus and less like Jonah. Because we're already like Jonah enough, aren't we? I hope that you'll come this morning and deal with whatever delayed obedience or disobedience is in your heart today. Whatever the call God has put on you that you've been running from and resisting. I don't want to serve in that way. I don't want to do that. I don't want to give up that Thursday morning. I don't want to give up that Tuesday night. I don't want to do that, Lord. But you know in your heart that's what God wants you to do. 
God, I'm not capable enough. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. But God says, I am enough. Obey me and I'll be enough for you. Come to this altar this morning. I hope you'll come tonight to the This Is My Story training and learn how you can go to Nineveh or go to Jerusalem or go to Judea, go across the street to the cubicle next door, to the, around the world to Honduras. Learn how you can go to other people and share the good news of Christ. And I encourage you this week, share that good news with someone. Bring someone to church with you next Sunday. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you today to come and to surrender to His plan of salvation. Because no amount of goodness can rescue you from life's storms. You don't have to have it all figured out first. You know, these sailors didn't know much. They simply knew that God is, that He judges sin, that they were guilty. He was the Lord of heaven and earth. And in faith, they surrendered to His plan of salvation, even though they didn't understand it. And they allowed someone else to take their place and suffer God's wrath so they could be saved. Jesus took your sins upon Himself. He suffered the wrath of God so that you could be saved. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come right now and trust in Him. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, thank You for the good news of Your love none of us deserve. Salvation. Not a one of us in this room are deserving of any of your good gifts. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know that love, they would come today and have their lives transformed from the inside out. Father, for those of us that do belong to you, that are called by the name of Christ, Lord, forgive us for our indifference and our reluctance for our disobedience, for not trusting in You enough to be able to use us for Your glory. God, help us to be different. Revive us, awaken us, give us a fresh burden, and help us to be obedient to Your call on each of our lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You come. Will you go wherever the Lord leads? Will you do whatever the Lord asks of you to do? I pray that you will. Would you come as he leads you this morning?